Hey everybody, if you are a writer or an aspiring writer, or if you just love literature, I have a book for you. It's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories. It is the long-awaited craft book by Steve Almond, based on three decades of his writing career, a career that has featured at turns depression, failure, anxiety, self-loathing, despair, self-doubt, loss of faith, delusions of grandeur, and the occasional triumph. It's a book about the writing life. Steve Almond has done it. He has embraced it, the full catastrophe, and he has lived to tell about it. The Boston Globe says, quote, this isn't just a book about writing. It's a book about honesty. And Richard Russo calls it, quote, one of the best books on writing I've ever read. It's also the funniest by a country mile. Once again, it's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories by Steve Almond, available from Zando. Go get your copy right now, wherever you buy books. Hey everybody, this week's episode is brought to you once again by The Great Courses Plus. The Great Courses Plus, I'm a big fan of it. It's an online streaming service. It allows me to expand my knowledge. I need to expand my knowledge on a huge variety of different topics. I need to expand my knowledge on a huge variety of different topics. Not only that, The Great Courses Plus is convenient. I can listen wherever I am, whenever I want, and I can learn about virtually anything from Shakespeare to medieval Europe to the mysteries of human behavior to photography to outer space. You name it. It's unlimited. You have unlimited access to thousands of lectures presented by experts who are both knowledgeable and passionate about their subjects. The Great Courses Plus has a great course that I recommend starting with if you're a bookish person, if you're a nerd, if you like literature. It's called Life Lessons from the Great Books. I love this course. It uh, draws you into the world of masterpieces like Macbeth, Brave New World, Odyssey, The Odyssey, and so much more. You explore wisdom that can be gleaned from each story, and you can see, you can learn how it can be applied to any culture or stage of life. It's deep. It allows you to go deep. Lessons from the great books, from the great courses plus. Do you know what I'm saying? So the great courses plus, it's going to enrich your life. And because that's the case, I've arranged a special limited time offer for other people, listeners. If you're listening to this podcast, you can get an entire month of unlimited learning from The Great Courses Plus for free. You can enjoy life lessons from The Great Books for free. You can also learn uh, a whole lot more for free. But to get this special offer, you got to sign up through my special URL. Just go to thegreatcoursesplus.com slash otherppl. Start your free month trial right now. Sign up at thegreatcoursesplus.com slash otherppl. That's thegreatcoursesplus.com slash otherppl. Okay. You are not alone. You have found other people. You and I have a friend in common. Every stupid thing that a writer could do, I've done. I think it's really beautiful. Jesus, dude, what a struggle, you know? It was incredible, you know, it's like your head exploded seeing what was really there. And now here's your host. Brad Listy. Hey, just hey, one person, hey, just hey, one time. How's it going, everybody? This is the <laughs> right. Other People Podcast. I'm Brad Listy. I am in Los Angeles. I have Thomas Konstam on the program today. He has a new novel out called Lake City, available from Counterpoint. Uh, it is the official January pick of the Nervous Breakdown Book Club, and I had such a good time meeting him. I feel like we were immediately simpatico. I've never met him before. 
He came over. I think it was raining. It was a little rainy. We've had some rain in Los Angeles lately. But we sat down, and it was like we were old friends. I enjoyed the conversation. I enjoyed his novel. Once again, it is called Lake City Official January Pick of the Nervous Breakdown Book Club. For those of you who don't know, the nervousbreakdown.com is an online uh, literary community, and uh, it's like a lit mag. It's an online lit mag that I founded over a decade ago. I was the editor-in-chief for a long time. That title now belongs to Joseph Grantham, formerly uh, a guest on this program. But uh, thenervousbreakdown.com has its own monthly book club. If you're interested in joining that, it's pretty cool. You get a new book delivered to your door every 30 days, and I interview the authors on this podcast. It makes for an enriching cultural experience. So I got uh, I got some mail. I got a, a pretty good response to last week's episode. A lot of people uh, reaching out to me via email and on Twitter about episode 560, my conversation with Matilda Bernstein Sycamore. Tom Owens on Twitter, at Tom Owens 149 says, uh, Brad, great interview. Almost bailed during the monologue, though. And, uh, you know, I... I I did a monologue last week. Sometimes I've been doing a monologue. Other times I've just been trying to kind of get right to the interview. I always have mixed feelings about the monologues. I've polled my listeners before on Twitter and asked explicitly, like, should I just ditch the monologue? Do you guys really need to hear me doing this? And uh, overwhelmingly, people are like, yeah, we like the monologue. Except when people don't, like uh, Tom, which is totally fine. I'm not even sure if I like it. It's pretty neurotic. I tried to make it somewhat funny, but, uh, you know, it went on for a while. A listener named Joseph Edwin Hager says, Brad, I enjoyed your monologue today. I've often had similar questions when it comes to my own writing. I have a memoir out from Hell Press called Learn to Swim. It's the story of my best friend and me from childhood to adolescence and how he suddenly died in early adulthood. I didn't want to make the book about me. I wanted to show the world how great of a person he was, but also wanted to make it universal enough for people to connect simply through the theme of friendship. Since mine is a memoir and yours has elements of autobiography, there's bound to be humor. I think you can trust the reader to pick up on the humor, even if you think it's too subtle. Humor is a part of life, regardless of how dark it can get. Be true to yourself when you write and the humor will be there. As for making it about yourself... Your life is filtered through you. My life is filtered through me. In Learn to Swim, it is coming from my point of view because it has to be. To make it authentic and sincere, it had to be about my experience with this person. People can now connect to him through me. And if I had tried to force it away from me, then I don't think people would see his full worth because the connection would be severed. I get the reluctance to make it about yourself, but there's a way to filter so it's not self-indulgent. Embrace your perspective, Brad. And I think the why will fall into place. Good luck. You got this. Joseph Edwin Hager. So thank you, Joseph. That's encouraging. And uh, I hear you. I think there's a lot of truth in what you're saying. I mean, like, there's no way to divorce an autobiographical story from yourself. That's a little bit silly. And really, is there any way to divorce any story from yourself, even if it's like fantastical, right? All art is uh, autobiographical or autobiographical, right? Autobiographical. (laughs) You know, I've been thinking about it a lot too much. I think about it all the time. I talk about it too much, but it's just, it's just this sense of, uh, 
of not being able to move until I somehow find a way to get this out of me and get it built properly, make it into something that I can feel satisfied with. And uh, I'm not stopping. That's the good news. I still have a ways to go, but I'm not stopping despite uh, many efforts to stop. It just keeps happening. So hopefully I'll get there. A listener named Tomoko says, Hi Brad, I'm writing from Japan on the outskirts of Tokyo. I just wanted to say I truly appreciated your monologue in the latest episode. I love to write. Occasionally, I even tell people how therapeutic writing is. However, lately, I find myself sitting in front of my computer hardly able to produce a single sentence worth saving. I have a full-time job, so I allot a few hours to writing every day after dinner. At least, that's my intention. I know I'm doing it because I want to. Or do I? Why do I want to do it? What exactly is it that I'm trying to write? What purpose will it serve? I end up spending most of my time repeatedly repeatedly asking myself these questions instead of just writing my heart out. After a few hours of that, I go to bed feeling defeated. It's comforting to hear you voice your frustrations as a writer. We're all on this together. It encourages me to keep at it no matter how bleak it may seem. I listen to your podcast during my evening commute home. In the morning, the train is less crowded, so I'm able to secure enough space to open a book. I wouldn't have started listening to your podcast if the trains hadn't been so packed. No situation is ever all bad. Now the train ride home on Wednesdays are a special treat. Keep them coming. Thank you, Tomoko. Well, that's nice to hear, Tomoko. Thank you for listening, and thank you for taking the time to write all the way from the outskirts of Tokyo, Japan. What I can tell you from my own experience, and this is just me lately, I'm always experimenting. I went through a phase where I was blindfolding myself and talking into a microphone, this microphone actually, and then taking the recordings and transcribing. And you hear about this. You hear about writers blindfolding themselves while they write so they they get less self-conscious or, I don't know, it has some kind of freeing effect. Uh, Lately, what I've been doing is writing longhand while sitting on the floor. I have a coffee table here in my garage, and then, you know, what I do is I take a notebook, and uh, rather than stand at my computer, which is what I normally do, I, uh, I sit down and I fill a few pages of the notebook and I really don't have much of an agenda. I just sort of write what's on my mind as a diarist might write what is on his mind. And my attitude is that I just got to get into regular practice. I got to just show up, sit down, put words on the page. We'll fix it later. I got to let myself go. And it's been working. I don't know what I haven't, I haven't taken the time to reread anything. So I don't even know really what I have. I don't feel like I'm telling some sort of a plotted story. It really is just like diary entries, but I do get some satisfaction from it, and it does feel good to fill up those pages, and I think what my agenda is going to be from here, and again, this is just me. I have no idea if this is useful to you at all or to anyone listening, but I think what I'm going to do is when I finish the notebook, I'm going to then read it aloud into this microphone and record the sessions and then transcribe it and then dump it into uh, my document on my computer where my book lives in all of its messy glory. So I guess the the overall takeaway is just show up, like show up for work. You have your time set in the evenings after you get home off the train, you have your time, you sit at your notebook or you sit at your keyboard. And even if you don't write a single word, as long as you sit there and you're not like dicking around on Facebook or something, that's still working. And sometimes you'll get some words down and that's working too. 
And sometimes they'll be good. And that's, uh, that's lovely. So thank you to Moko and thank you to uh, everyone who reached out to me. If I didn't get to your letter, I apologize. If I didn't get to your tweet, uh, forgive me. I appreciate hearing from you guys. You can follow the show at other PPL. You can write to me. The email address is letters at other PPL.com. If you have thoughts or you want to tell me a story or what have you. Hey, everybody, if you are a writer or an aspiring writer, or if you just love literature, I have a book for you. It's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories. It is the long-awaited craft book by Steve Almond, based on three decades of his writing career, a career that has featured at turns depression, failure, anxiety, self-loathing, despair, self-doubt, loss of faith, delusions of grandeur, and the occasional triumph. It's a book about the writing life. Steve Almond has done it. He has embraced it, the full catastrophe, and he has lived to tell about it. The Boston Globe says, quote, this isn't just a book about writing. It's a book about honesty. And Richard Russo calls it, quote, one of the best books on writing I've ever read. It's also the funniest by a country mile. Once again, it's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories by Steve Almond, available from Zando. Go get your copy right now, wherever you buy books. My guest today is Thomas Konstam. His novel, Lake City, is out there now from Counterpoint Press and is earning rave reviews. It is the official January pick of the Nervous Breakdown Book Club. Here he is, folks. This is Thomas Konstam. We were on the tarmac for almost four hours, and uh, I was starting to freak out that I wasn't even going to be able to make it to my event. But, yeah, air traffic controllers are not, you know, it's it's impacting them. They're and, not getting uh, paid. Yeah. Because I mean, of the that's, shutdown. That's no joke. So, And you're, you're a formal, uh, former travel writer. This is true. So you've been on a million airplanes. This is true. How too. many countries have you been to? Ooh, you know, um, I don't know the actual number off the top of my head. My work as a travel writer was actually fairly uh, centralized. I, I, my beat was Latin America. Um, I came up studying languages, um, and so I have a background in, in Spanish and Portuguese. So you fluent. Uh, I'm definitely fluent in Portuguese. It started off with, like, I studied Spanish originally, and then I learned Portuguese, and the languages are, like, cousins, right? So um, I have, like, stacked my Portuguese on top of my on top of my Spanish. My wife is from Brazil, so we speak uh, Portuguese at home. And um, so my Spanish is a bit rusty right now, but my Spanish was fluent once upon a time. It's It's weird how you can actually lose a language it's almost like fitness i'm losing english <laughs> i don't know about that but um you know but def definitely like a second language you have to stay in practice and um I, I find even like when my wife speaks fluent english and so whenever i'm speaking with her in portuguese and i don't know a word or paint myself into a corner i can just like flip back to english but when her relatives are in town 
um, and I have to go for it 100% in Portuguese. Um, like if they haven't been around for a while, I realize I'm, I'm, I'm even a little rusty on that level of Portuguese. Like you always have to stay in practice. So. That's great though, that you can speak other. I wish I could speak fluently in another language. Yeah. Well, I never, I never took up a musical instrument. You know, I wish I could play a musical instrument. We kind of have to pick our things in life, but, um, Th those are like the two things. Like, yeah. why did I never learn an instrument and why don't I learn? A, why didn't I learn a language? Well, I, I don't know. I, the, the truth is, is that, that um, I never, I don't really have an, an English, like a formal English background. I never really took an English class in college. I never studied writing. Like I sort of. Where'd you go to school? Um, I went to undergrad. I went to Bowdoin College in Maine. Okay. And then I went to Stanford for graduate school to study Portuguese. I got a scholarship to study the federal government. Uh, pays for I, I, this is back to like commie scare stuff. They uh, pay for a certain number of students who are good with languages to study understudied languages. So um, not that easy to get the uh, scholarship to study French or Spanish, but something like Portuguese or Russian or whatever, they uh, bankroll some students to go to a handful of schools. And I was fortunate to. Uh, we need some people to go study Russian. So yeah. Decipher yeah. what the fuck is going on. <laughs> Yeah, uh, I, yeah, I don't know if, even know if that scholarship still exists, but uh, it did in 2001 when I went to school. So, so okay, so you uh, earlier in your career travel writing, but 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 the link between languages and travel writing was the first thing that I did was phrase books, and when I was first out of undergrad, I had been traveling. I had been an exchange student in Argentina. I had been working down in Costa Rica, and just as like as a you know, I was in my early 20s, but still a juvenile male in my head. I'd been writing down like swear words and slang and just was really interested in um, how different Argentine Spanish and Costa Rican Spanish were. They're like practically different languages. Um, and uh, I was looking through the back of a Lonely Planet book and they had one Latin American Spanish phrase book. And so I just randomly pitched. I was like, man, I have all this Costa Rican slang I've been writing down. And I just pitched them through their custom. Like you wouldn't even get an answer on this in, in 2019, but it was like customer service at lonelyplanet.com. I said, Hey, I have all this, uh, this, uh, Costa Rican Spanish glossary essentially that I've been working on. Could I put it in one of your guys guidebooks? And I got an email back that said, let's do a whole phrase book about it. And uh, things went from there. And so at, at like 22, I did this first. Like, really painful to write a dictionary, especially in like a relatively low-tech era. It wasn't done like in some sort of – I had to like hand alphabetize the whole thing, right. which was, was grueling. There but, wasn't like an algorithm. Yeah, and there, it wasn't even in – it wasn't in Excel or something that could yeah, could take care of it for you. Um but yeah, it was a, it was, it wasn't exactly the uh, pinnacle of writing, but, um, yeah, it just, it kind of gave me a little taste of publishing in the first place. And then my career went off in weird directions for a little bit, but I came back around then to, to travel writing. And I was always fascinated by languages and travel and culture in general. They send you out in the field. Yeah. I spent a big chunk of my twenties on the road. So um, like where, where did you go? I mean, you said, I, you know, Latin I was America. mainly, I was mainly, I was in Brazil, Chile, Argentina, Venezuela, Colombia, um, a bunch of places in the Caribbean too. Where should I go? Where should you go? Um, well, normally I would say Brazil. Um, just, I think Brazil's really interesting because, you know, usually when people compare the U S to another, another country, it's always to England. 
because of our obvious shared history um, or colonial history, but England and the United States actually have very little in common, right? Brazil is a continental-sized former colony, former slave state in the Americas with a big many hundred of millions of people, multicultural uh, culture. and Lots of natural resources to plunder. Ton, tons of more than we had here. And that might, might be one of their, you know, one of their shortcomings is that they've just been pillaged over the years. Well, and they're in, uh, they're in a pretty bad way, too, right so, now. So that's why I was going to say, like, normally I would recommend Brazil. But uh, Bolsonaro, who was just elected, is like, he makes Trump, like, like Trump, to me is like acting at being a fascist and he's really just all about self enrichment. Um, Bolsonaro is like fucking evil. Like yeah, this guy, yeah. yeah. I mean, his basic argument and he said stuff about the, the former military dictatorship was just like, we should have just killed another 30,000 people. And by that he means leftists and, and poor people and, you know, basically pulled more of a Pinochet and, and just overcome, uh, rather than fixing any problems in the country, we should have just killed all these people. And he was, and, and he was elected. He not only was he elected, like members of my wife's family have voted for him, and there's like big schisms in families. But the 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 what's happening in Brazil is that the economy has collapsed, and crime has spiked, and everybody's so freaked out right. about just. It, and the security situation is very real; like it's bad. Last time I was there, we were, our, you know, my my seven year old and four. They were. This was last year, so they were six and three at the time. They're playing with their cousin. I'm sitting on the deck, and we're just listening to machine gun fire in the distance. Well, that's and charming. It was, yeah, and it was far enough away that it's like, okay, this isn't right here, but those bullets all go somewhere. My my father in law's apartment, uh, my my in laws are separated. His his uh, his apartment has been hit by two bullets, just like into the wall. And uh, people, you know, a number of family members have recently been been mugged. Nobody's been hurt, but you know, it's like getting your cell phone stolen at gunpoint, that sort of stuff. And, um, you know, so, so people then are, they, they fall for, it's not fair of me to say they fall for they're, they're intelligent people, but it's, it's similar to what Trump has done with the like white blue collar here that I am the one solution you have to globalization. I, by sheer force of my personality can fix this problem that you've been told is unfixable. Bolsonaro is essentially doing the same thing where he's like this, you know, he hasn't come up with one way of talking about how, Oh, well the, the police department is bankrupt. He hasn't come up with a way of like generating more tax base to actually fund the police. He's just like, we're going to fucking kill them all. And I'm the guy who's going to, you know, he's like, he's like the movie general bad guy who's, um, but it isn't, it always this way. Like this isn't like like the rise of these autocrats and, and, uh, dictators. It always is an outgrowth of, um, like economic destruction and anxiety. Yeah. Like economic collapse, anxiety. It's the same uh, format that played out in Europe in the 20th century. Uh, you know what I'm saying? Well, it's always and, that and way. And I think human, human psychology, you know, they, they just play strong daddy then. And, and a lot of people are looking for strong daddy or Lord Savior or some, some you know, it's 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 time for for dad to send everybody to their room and somebody to to you know bring order back uh when everybody's freaked out and uh i personally i i i don't i don't get it um from my own perspective but yeah 
So don't go to Brazil right now. Is basically well, you know, I'm I'm gonna I'm we're planning to go sometime in the near future. Yeah, but you we, got family there. Yeah, we try to go every year, and you know, I'm, I don't know that we shouldn't go to Brazil. Normally, I would say go to Brazil. I think Colombia is a very charming country. Cuba is a very charming country. Those those are countries that have like. The reason I would recommend those, I mean, Argentina and Chile are beautiful, um, but but Brazil, Cuba, Colombia, some of the Central American countries have a real cultural warmth. I think they have and a, a, little, a musicality too. Musicality and and a lot of that. All the, one of the things that all those countries have in common is they have more African uh, influence in the in the culture. And um, there's just a, 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 a beautiful, warm vibe that um, one of the things that really encouraged me to taking it even one step further back, why I was interested in studying Spanish in the first place, is I'm a Seattleite, like born and bred Seattleite. And Seattle has a lot of amazing things happening there, but people are also kind of socked away in their houses. You don't talk to people. We have a thing called the Seattle freeze where you don't, uh, you know, strike up conversations with, with people on the street. And, and, um, that's how it is in LA too. Yeah. I th- you know, I mean, as Americans, Brazilians see Americans as cold. I'm like, I think we're kind of mid spectrum. We're not like the British where you have to be like introduced to somebody to feel, and then be uh, like, French me, too. I'm terribly sorry. To, Parisian culture yeah. is like really cl- like closed off that way yeah. too. It's not yeah. like you're going to go up and like make buddies. It's like, you have to go through a whole process just yeah. to like make the cut. Yeah. I, I took a trip to Norway and, uh, back when I was working as more of a travel writer, did like a press trip up there. And I felt like when I came back, I was like, okay, I understand Seattle better because we have a lot of like Norwegian history, like Norwegian and Japanese. My wife is Norwegian. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's a, it's a great place. Everything works well. It's beautiful, but you're not like, Hey, how's it going to people on the (laughs) sidewalk? Like, you know, what's going on. And, um, and so I, I remember as a kid reading something about, it was like, seventh grade we took introduction cor- or introductory course to all these different languages you did like a few days of spanish a few days of french and they did something about like maria and elena go to the plaza and like and and there were i was like wow this sort of communal meeting space that was very attractive to me and me too uh, yeah it's and it's a beautiful thing i mean you you like talking to people obviously you probably wouldn't be doing this otherwise but only in only in like a uh specific environment i like i like intimate small phones off no interruptions do you like to talk to (laughs) cab drivers i do yeah Yeah, sometimes it depends on the driver yeah sometimes it can be like dude (laughs) yeah yeah i'm just gonna put my earbuds yeah fortunately you know that it's gonna be over pretty quickly uh if you get if you get a a weird vibe but yeah i liked I i like people and you know and and i feel like I feel very fortunate um, now at this point having like the Brazilian side of my life and the Seattle side of my life. A lot of like my brother-in-law just moved up to Seattle. Like getting ahead in Brazil is really hard right now. Um, and by getting ahead, I mean like ever being able to move out of your mom's house, even when you're working 12 hours a day, um, full-time job scenario. I feel like that's and, where we're headed. Yeah. In I mean, a lot of places. Yeah. Increasingly. Hey, I mean, it's, it's, in, it's insane. My, my wife and I bought the house I grew up in off of my folks. I was fortunate to be able to do that, but just like openly buying real estate in Seattle right now, it's bananas. Yeah. You know, I yeah. mean, we're not quite LA, but we're not that far behind. No, all these, and, all big cities, you know, it's like, it's a real, but Seattle's only 800,000 people. It's not really a big city. Really? It's a small city. Yeah. It looks big. I was just well, there for the first time this but, fall. But think about this. I'm going to ask you about that in a second, but, um, 800,000 people, and we have the two richest men alive live there. 
Like, what kind of weird phenomena? I don't know if anything like that has ever happened in the past. Not, I mean, obviously, there were a big, a massive city used to be 800,000 people when there were just like a million people on the planet or whatever. But, like, like it's like a fourth, fifth-tier city size-wise. I mean, I don't know about maybe, like, during the tulip boom or something in some... Utrecht or something or some random town like that had a phenomenon like this, but it's a small city. San Francisco is not very big either. San Francisco, I mean, the Bay Area itself is is sizable, but Seattle's small and has like the influence of Microsoft and Amazon is insane, especially Amazon as it's moved into the downtown part of the city. And it's just the, the pace of change right now is relentless. Um, yeah, I mean, I could tell you stories. That, and, and I have a, this weird perspective on it because we bought the house I grew up in. So, Which is what, what part of the town are you in? You in Lake I live, City? I live on the edge of Lake City. I was born in Lake City and then moved to this area between Ravenna and Lake City. And, uh, yeah, I've been there on and off since the 1970s. So I'm essentially the reigning senior on the block. <laughs> and, no, I am. Yeah. And, um, like, there are people in their 60s that haven't lived around there as long as I have. And, um, and uh yeah, it, it used to be the the people across the street. The guy was retired Navy. There was a drywaller owned a house down the street. Like that is never going to happen again. Uh, uh, people who worked at like canneries and on, on boats up in Alaska, and yeah, we had like you know a professor from University of Washington. He was kind of in the greater orbit of the University of Washington, so there was always kind of a little intelligentsia uh, uh, vibe too. But um, now it's like Amazon, Facebook, Amazon, Microsoft, and like the outliers, like a doctor or, you know, it's, it's really all changed and um, it's intense and it's, it's good and bad. I don't, I, I'm not one of these people who feel like everything used to be great and now it's all shit. Um, yeah. No, no, nostal- yeah. nostalgia is kind of a poison. Yeah. And, and Seattle, if, you know, growing up there, I had a love hate relationship with it and thought that, um, I've I've heard you on your podcast talk about you know your your relationship with Milwaukee and with Indiana, right? Yeah, yeah, and like, and I, I remember you talking about that, and I was like, I felt the same way in Seattle. I was like, I can't wait to get the fuck out of this place. Nothing ever happens here, and I mean that. Then, well, one thing that did happen is I was had this weird phenomenon of going to high school from ninety one to ninety four, which was essentially like Nirvana played Saturday Night Live like and went national in 1991 and Kurt Cobain killed himself over spring break in 1994 so like street culture from essentially from my neighborhood like from the Ave and Broadway and you know the the like Doc Martens and plaids and the style that I was seeing on Sunset last night making a resurgence um went global like years later i had a girlfriend from from london and she was showing me pictures of herself uh in high school and i was like you look like somebody from like broadway in seattle um so it was a, that was a weird phenomenon because it was like we went from like nothing ever happens here this town's a total backwater this place <laughs> sucks to like whoa you know what yeah. the fuck um but but yeah it was it was you know people were down on seattle like, and, and that all that music has has like is shot through with like depression and angst and like you know, I'm sitting in my basement and shooting heroin and it's raining outside and right. you know, uh, it sucks and it's just all mud everywhere, you know. Um, but yeah, it was very white bread and it's it's very cosmopolitan now, but we've lost a ton of class diversity. So that's my basic. Well, I was take. just, you know, I've all, I, I was kind of embarrassed that I had never been to Seattle. And then I was there twice this fall uh, for work mm-hmm. and it was beautiful. 
Yeah. I caught it at a great time, too. The weather was great. It was like that crisp what, Do you fall remember weather. which month you were there? Like October or November. Yeah. yeah. I, when the fall is nice, it's it's actually one of my favorite seasons. It, it has really nice light. And they, Seattle has done a really nice job of keeping a lot of trees in the city. So when you fly in, it looks like, you know, houses between all this green. And it's a very, you know... And it's big though. Like I like yeah. I know it's only eight hundred thousand people, but it's spread. When I was driving in, I was like, "Well, this is like a this is a big city." I don't know. I yeah. just, it gives gives that impression at least. Okay, well, but I, that I, makes I, me proud that you feel that way. I'm always I'm, a, I'm like a civic booster. I'm like, "Come on, Seattle, you can do it." Yeah, but, well, that's good. It's good that you like where you know. It's a good place yeah. to be from. I mean, you it, could do worse. Yeah, yeah. No, I mean, I remember. Um, flaming out and winding up back on my mom's couch. Uh, which actually was like the emotional point, starting point in this book. I was going to say there's yeah. some corollary here. Yeah, and I was talking to my friend who he lived in Chicago at that point, and was kind of you know moaning to my friend about it. And he's like, "Yeah, my other friend went through the same thing, and he's back in Peoria, Illinois, right now. At least you're not in Peoria." Yeah, right? <laughs> I was like, "All right, fair point. Yeah, I'll shut up now." <laughs> but. Uh, you know, if you're unhappy, you're unhappy. It doesn't matter where you are. And, uh, you know, I've side thing I've been thinking about a lot about, you know, just a lot. So much of life is, is perspective. And well, and so yeah. for somebody who's a travel writer and who's got like a little bit of wanderlust and loves to move around, like I have that and I haven't been able to exercise it in a long time just because of uh, life circumstances and yeah. different stages of life. But yeah, I'm the same way, though. One I mean, of the things yeah. you notice is that, you know, you whatever you're running away from or would like to escape, like, change of location isn't going to fix it. No. Like, if you're, if you're pissed off and unhappy in Seattle and you fly to Brazil, you're going to just be pissed off. <laughs> yeah, no, I, I agree 100%. And I really burn out at the end of being a travel writer. And I, I had this recurring vision First off, I'd just been on the road for too long. I had this recurring vision of opening a mirrored cabinet in a bathroom and my toothbrush being in there rather than like digging a wet toothbrush out of a bag. I was just like sick of life on the road. I wanted like some sort of stability. Yeah. Um, but the other thing, but the other thing was, is that I felt like I was having all this novelty and superficial experience, but I was having a lot of the same conversations. I, I, I was craving depth and novelty novelty doesn't really it, it's fun for a little bit but it's not going to change your life and 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 you know in in the long run like i you have to work on yourself and be happy with and and build deeper relationships that's that's the the most fulfilling thing i think so well, yeah and, and i you know like what i say uh my wife and i have had conversations about this is that like when it comes to international travel like really the best way to do it like at least from my perspective is to live somewhere for at least a month. Yeah, I agree 100%. Like, have a home base. Like, if you want to do, like, train trips or short flights to, like, you know, on, like, weekends or something to nearby places, fine. But, like, I, I like to, like, rent a residence and be integrated into some neighborhood. Yep. Not a hotel. Yep. You know, and then to stay long enough to, like, get bored. Yeah. No, I, I agree with you. On, and, and those, not that that's easy to do. No, but I'm, <laughs> I'm really interested. Yeah. No, but I'm really in, not bored, but just to experience sort of quotidian stuff right. where you're, like, going to the store to buy groceries and recognize the same people on the street a few times and just get a taste of, like, what day-to-day -day life is like. I, I too, have young children right now. And, and again, we go to visit my in-laws. So I do have this one um, travel component in, in my life. But 
I'm not really traveling very much beyond that otherwise. How much, does, how much does it suck to fly back to the United States and go through customs and see Donald fucking Trump picture? Yeah. I, haven't, I haven't actually seen his picture yet. Maybe I've been trying to keep my eyes to the ground. <laughs> I, I'm like, but, I, like, I think about that, like, both, like, you know, talk about, like, uh, now's not maybe a great time to travel to Brazil. Like, I think now's not a great time to travel to the States no, just for that experience. No, I was just in touch with a friend from high school who lives in Europe and is uh, married to a European and she was saying yeah we want to come back but I just feel like now is not a good time to come to the country and it's just like and she says, it's just embarrassing and it is I think about it, it's embarrassing it's like how as a country do we ever move beyond like that happened that's like if you're it's like if you're in a relationship now and you're like, yeah, but I used to, you know, I used to be a male prostitute or I did a couple of, of like porn movies back in the day. It's like you can you can work through that, but it's like still you still did that, you know, that never fully that never fully washes away. And um, this is like this is the moment that these are like the porn movies we did where we were just like we we revealed the cheesy fucking soul of the united states and and I, I i just don't know how or from where we regain any sense of moral authority i mean it's always been there's always been an argument about anything that you know u.s talks about moral moral authority is always there have been so many other things in our past that you know i think it's got to be radical that, but, i think know. it's got to be radical like the only the only real solution and I've had like this conversation in different forms, maybe bits and pieces of it across mm -hmm. different conversations I've had on the show. But uh, I think it's got to be radical. And um, I, I got to be very careful to point out that I'm not talking about like violence. Mm -hmm. I'm just talking about big mm -hmm. and fundamental. Yeah. And like, like I think the what is it? The root of the word radical, I think, is something close to like core or something hmm. like that, like uh, etymologically. But um, I don't know. That's a good it. Uh, like reparations, media yeah, well, reform. I, the, but, but what crosses my mind when you say that right now is that I would like something radical too, but I would like something radical in the direction that it sounds like both of us would like. And if something radical happens, it could be radical in the opposite direction. Well, too. It's happening and, right now. And yeah, there are dudes in the hillside stocking up on AR-15s and hand grenades right now. Yeah, and, gun uh, reform. Like, you know yeah. what I'm saying? Like, we have to have a fundamental change for the better. And right. it's not going to be, I, I don't want to hear about, like, incremental, slow, we can't do this now. Like, I'm not, that's not who I want to be, you know, have uh, leading us. Mm -hmm. I want someone with uh, some cojones and, yeah. like, a real vision who won't take no for an answer and who isn't buying the bullshit that things that are possible on this planet and there's evidence for it, mm -hmm. uh, you know, in other countries, it's not like it's like, there's no precedent, you know, mm -hmm. there's precedent for uh, universal health care, just yeah. as an example, all over the planet. For sure. Don't tell me that it can't happen, you know? Yeah. yeah. And how, yeah. I mean, well, I think that it's going to be interesting to see who runs on the democratic ticket and well, a lot of people are going to run and see how, who comes out on the top. But I think that they should hear sentiment like you're, expressing right now because i think a lot of people are feeling that way that now is not the time to it's not uh, the time for make, half measures make, yeah it's not the time to make the the safe establishment choice um people need to 
be inspired to. That's um, right. And, That's right. And uh, it, it's a common going to be a combination of, of action and um, and engagement with people. But uh, yeah, it's a very very interesting time that we live in right now. And um, that said, I, I recently um, read a book, uh, Luke Sante book, uh, Low Life about uh, Lower East Side. Um, it amazing book uh but it's basically about the history of the bowery in new york and i was like it made me feel so much better about our present <laughs> I was like, like there were times new york city had like competing police forces that were like, fighting with each other and people were um doing you know uh orphans my my grandfather was an orphan in new york city like 19 born 1907 orphaned in like 1911 and like bushwick brooklyn and like they were sending out orphans to collect like they're paying them a penny a pop for getting like sewer rats so they could fight terriers against rats and then they were like burying the dead terriers under the under the bleachers and these like just like just so grimy and you know they had like youth brothels for like just 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 gnarly stuff right. i was like okay Things are messed up right now, but you're making, you're making me feel better. Just yeah, about I mean, <laughs> they've all, things have always been really messed up in different ways, and yeah. and you know there there is there is the argument that you know the world has in certain ways never been a safer place either. And I just it, got you know, an email from a buddy of mine. He that's always his take. Yeah, like you can be like, hey, by the way, like the city's on fire, and uh, you know the the mayor just uh, cut somebody's head off, and he'd be like, "This is the best time to be alive." Yeah. Just, you know, like there's not like he refuses to like accept any negative news. Yeah. Well, and maybe that's the way to be. But like, I also sometimes feel like, dude, like get real. You yeah. know, like there's like I get it. I get maybe it. Maybe Israel. We're not. You know, it's not 1919. Uh, 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 a hundred years ago, Spanish flu was like devastating the united states so i'm knocking on wood because the flu can you can mutate there could be another strain yeah. of that yes yes and like god but, knows but you the can't CD think, yeah you can't think about that too i mean like, <laughs> that's like the entire and i mean and, and that's a natural place for people to go to like humans have we've we've had so much insecurity over the uh, the entire existence of you know food insecurity or the neighboring community was going to come over the hill and kill everybody and take all of our shit. Like that's our, our natural operating point. But I don't know. You live I'm, in a beautiful house in a beautiful city. You got a beautiful family. You, you know, know, there's, there's listen, a lot of, you know, and I there's get a it. lot of reason to, I'm talking to myself as much <laughs> as you do. <laughs> no, but I get it. And I get it. I, I think that, um, you know, in those, in, in a big picture way on a, from a certain angle, all of those things are true. Yeah. You know, like we, uh, like wars at an all time low, at least like military traditional combat. Of course, yeah. Of course, any war that happens now could like just blow away the whole planet in three seconds when it did yeah. happen. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. They don't, you know. like, I always fail to mention that, but like yeah. poverty, like global poverty has declined significantly in our lifetimes. Like there are these positive things, but to hang your hat on that. And to just like like stay sort of like vision locked on that mm -hmm. while all this other stuff is going on, mm -hmm. that that seems like a cop out to me. Like, yeah, of course. Like, I'm still functional. I'm mm -hmm. not in the fetal position. Mm -hmm. I'm not like negative Nancy. Like constantly, or at least I hope I'm not. <laughs> um, constantly, um, you know, shitting on every positive experience in life. I go hiking. Like, I'm mm -hmm. in awe at the sunrise. Mm -hmm. But I think that there is an obligation, particularly for people of means or for people of education or for people with a sense of civic duty and responsibility to their fellow man to engage with this stuff. You're right. It's a, it, it's a, to me, it feels like a, a, an adult responsibility to point out uh, corruption 
and uh, malpractice on the part of our leaders and dysfunction in our media, like, and to also uh, talk about like, what are the possibilities for the future? How can mm -hmm. we imagine a different mode of existing that is going to be more equitable so that we don't have a guy in Seattle who is sitting on a pile of $154 billion. Yeah. And, and homelessness, they've had like a 10, it's like 10 times greater in Seattle right now than it has been in recent years past. Something like that. I've, I we noticed have, we have shanty towns in Seattle now in like all over town. And oh, it's, it's crazy. Too. It's never. Yeah. I mean, like Skid Row in downtown LA is like, that's for real. 10,000 people plus. Wow. Yeah. All West Coast cities pretty much. Well, um, you know, and it's, you know, Portland, Vancouver, uh, you know, even with different, it's, it's maybe not as bad as in Vancouver. You go to East Hastings streets in Vancouver is pretty intense though. And, um, yeah, it's it's real. See, I yeah. like Seattle because you have access to Canada. Quick access if you need it. Yeah. The shit hits the fan. Just go to Vancouver. <laughs> just sit down. Look at a picture. I of, love Vancouver. Look at a picture of Justin Trudeau. <laughs> stare into those eyes. Um, like, I'm, I'm into skiing, so I'm very... I actually was hoping to move to Whistler when I met my wife in Seattle randomly after spending all this time in Brazil. I was visiting my folks in Seattle met her at a birthday party and moved back to Seattle over a Brazilian. Um, but I had this plan. I was working on the, uh, on my first book at that point, And I was like, I'm gonna move to Whistler and ski. And just like, this is going to be my dream, dream life. I'm going to wait. And your, and your first book was the travel, travel writers. Yeah. In 2008. So 10 years ago, but plug um, it so people can buy it. Yeah. Well, it's, it was a book about my first experience on the kind of kicking my whole life, to the curb in New York and following my dream of becoming a travel writer and the good, the bad and the ugly that I experienced along the way on my first project in Brazil. Um, so it's sort of contained into that, that project. Um, but wait, you were in New York, you were based there. I was living in New York. Yeah. I had, I had flamed out of grad school. I was living in New York and then basically I had done this phrase book writing in the past. So I had a relation. It wasn't like totally out of the blue, but it was pretty out of the blue that um, I got this opportunity to become a travel writer again. And I was had this sort of post-college, um, you know, it started to, I had, you know, was in an apartment and had a girlfriend in New York and all these things was starting to make progress in the way that you're supposed to make progress. And I was like, I don't think I want any of this. And uh, kind of kicked it all to the curb to follow my dream. And then, you know, you're also, I, I've, I felt like in writing the book, there are a lot of stories about how people follow their dreams and then everything works out great. And they sit under a olive, you know, tree or, or olive grow on trees or bushes. I don't even know trees, trees. <laughs> in, in Tuscany and, and fall in love and everything is great. And I kicked it all the curb and went on the road as a travel writer. Um, and it was like some certain things were amazing and other things are like, Oh, um, you got pistol whipped. Yeah, that was, that's actually not in the book that, that, that took place in Venezuela, um, on a, on, and, and, that's a side story about how that book actually got published. I can talk about that in a second because that, that ties to my book now. By the way, Venezuela is a lovely place to get pistol whipped. Yeah, it's probably the best place to get pistol whipped in Latin America <laughs> right now. Um, it was, yeah, I, I, not only did I get pistol whipped, I, these guys stole my shoes, my watch, tried to take my pants off. Jesus. They were like, going to steal my jeans. 
Um, it was like just a crew of like dudes. One was on crutches too. There was just like I was walking down this pedestrian street, and all these guys just came out of doorways, and I was like, "Oh shit!" Turn around and start to run back the other way, and I just got clobbered in the side of the head. Went to the ground at night. Everybody's on me. Then the cops came in the middle of it. Two cops on one motorcycle with a machine gun and lined these guys up on the wall, made them all strip naked, and then started beating them with a stick. I was like, I want no part of it. It was just so gnarly. And then, and then the cop, they had my my debit card, and the cops like, uh, you know, I'm going to need to know what your pin number is on this, essentially, to prove that this is your card. I was like, it has my name on it. And he's like, no, I need your pin number. I was like, yeah, right. It's a uh, one, two, three, four. And uh, anyway, so the other cop escorted me back then. Uh, so they were going to extort you or just. They, yeah. And he said the pin didn't work. And then they walked me to the ATM and I had to pay out the cops. And it, it ended up, I, I forget what, this was years ago. And I forget it was like the equivalent of $22 or $25. Still, which still. Yeah, still. But, you know, and I and I didn't, you know. I also felt bad that they're hitting these people with a stick like they did they did mug me or attempt to mug me but they're also like a bunch of like impoverished young men on the streets of Venezuela and there's some random drunk gringo walking I'm, I, I'm not saying that but what about, it's what justified about, but what about stripping somebody naked who does that just making them walk home nude is that <laughs> am, I, am I a psycho for thinking that might be like I mean it's not yeah, violent maybe <laughs> I don't know I don't know where they lived or maybe they lived right on that street but um, but, but going back to the, going back to my first book, I think that the, the thematic through line, which is also in my current book is the downside of ambition and that the, you know, and, and ties a little bit like we, we are told in the, in our individualistic, hyper-capitalistic society that getting ahead, moving far away from home, accumulating uh, material things is like the way to find happiness, the way to improve. And we're getting that from the top down. Like the, Trump says essentially what, what he is demonstrating to everybody that you're, you're – and that's where all the other you know, establishment Republicans can relate to him is that like – you know, your best interest is the most important. Your own personal best interest is the most important thing. Getting ahead, like it doesn't matter what the cost is to friends, family, the environment, whatever. It's Ayn Rand. Uh, yeah, so it looks yeah, like exactly, it's Randian exactly. Craziness. Yeah, and that's 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 the three line between the Paul Ryan's of this world, and even you know, it's uh, so depressing. Yeah, it's but, so it's so blatantly but, wrongheaded. Well, but but you know, but still, even like. You know, anybody who undertakes writing a book, like you're still an ambitious person and like, you know, there's such a thing as healthy ambition. Like if you, I, it still all has down. Yeah. It, but it's, 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 it's always a work in progress balance. So I'm sorry, sorry what you're going to say. I'm no, no. I just, cause I, I've been thinking so much about this. I think it's a recurring theme in my life as somebody who has struggled to find a place in the capitalist system that feels right to me. Uh, morally, ethically, I'm looking for inspiration. Like, mm -hmm. I don't know if I'm too idealistic, but I look around at what people are doing and what they're chasing and none of it, like so much of it doesn't appeal to me. Mm -hmm. And there has to be a sense of mission. And, you know, like I was thinking the other day, I was like struggling to write as mm -hmm. one does. Yes. And I just kind of paused and I was like, why am I doing this? Yeah. Like why, why? Yeah. Why am I spending all this time and energy over all these years, fits and starts, successes and failures, you know, like going through the difficulty. Yeah. Why? I think about that all the time. And I think that if one's sense of ambition or purpose is too self-focused, like I need to get this, even if it's just like, I need to get this out of me, I need to exercise this. 
versus I'm trying to communicate with somebody, help somebody. And I'm speaking only for my own, I can only speak for myself, but losing the thread of I'm trying to help the reader somehow, whether it's to mitigate loneliness or to um, offer, I don't know, some kind of life raft or bits of insight or shared share life, experience. Share life experience. Yeah. Life, but sure. like losing that as your North Star is the kiss of death. And it's easy to, it's easier to do than I wish it were. Mm -hmm. And I think that, I don't know, I feel like, uh, so much of what people chase in this life. And like you said, so much of what we're told to chase has very little to do with an ambition to help others. Yeah. And it's true, you know, well, I mean, this is what Lake City essentially is about is, you know, Lane, the protagonist starts as a very, he, he's fundamentally always looking out for himself and trying to get ahead. He's not chasing money so much as status, um, ego driven perhaps, but you know, he's also a grad student and is going around advertising himself as somebody who wants to work for an NGO and the greater good. And it, you know, uh, because there's cachet in that too. And he's, I, you know, he, he starts off, I would say, as a pretty tough person to like. I didn't go like, I, I think it would have been not that difficult to make him more sympathetic from the beginning. I could have given him a kid brother that he was looking out for. His mom could have been losing her house or something like that, which would justify, uh, you know, some of this behavior. But, but he's, he's, he, I, I'd like to think that, that, you know, if you were to ask him, he'd say, hey, if I'm not looking out for myself, who's looking out for me? How am I going to get ahead? I'm a talented guy or I have I have intellectual potential. I want to live in a world of ideas. I want to you know, I don't want to be working the deli slicer at Fred Meyer anymore. And if I don't make these decisions in my best interest, who is going to? Um, and then as the as the as it ramps up from there. Um, he's faced with situations where you, who do you step, when is it okay to step over other people that, you know, and there's this woman, uh, Nina in the story, who's a, an accomplished, very type A personality who has, you know, maybe made those decisions to get ahead. And, and her, she's sort of sitting on one of his shoulders saying, yeah, fuck it. These people aren't going anywhere. They're going to be, you know, punching the same time clock or watching the same bad TV in 10 years, whether you make this decision or not. Um, just go for it. But he's his life on certain ways. I don't know if a collision, but he has a crossing arc with with Inez. Should probably tell the 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 kind of the the high level of the story. But uh, you know, it's essentially about this 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 uh, ambitious loser who um, gets involved in or is contracted by a wealthy adoptive couple to seduce seduce and sabotage this troubled birth mom from his neighborhood. Um, and uh, he's trying to get back this life he believes that he deserves. And But he's trying to make the right decision in the process, and he can't figure out what the right decision is. So this birth mom, Inez, she's somebody who's always fallen on the sword for the people uh, for the people around her. She's been taking care of her mom. You know, she's had, like, shitty ex-boyfriend situation. She's been in trouble with the law. All petty stuff. But, but just, uh, again, you know in that swirling around the drain in poverty and she's 
moving towards making a decision in her best interest and trying to improve her own life. And Lane is, is moving toward going from superficially walking around and talking about like wanting to do things for the greater good and using that as, as a way to like build cachet to actually in a concrete way, doing something for somebody else. Um, but yeah, it, and, and I'd like to think that the, that, you know, I'm, it's maybe above my pay grade to like answer any of the, I don't know if any of these questions about ambition, um, and especially, you know, framed around class like that. I don't know that any of them really have answers. I think we have so many, we're, we're faced as individuals, we're faced with having to make so many different decisions about what's, what's in our best interest, what's in, you know, other people's best interest. It's always a work in progress. And I think that hopefully whether you, you know, hate Lane or not, that can relate a little bit to, to the way that he's, yeah, that, that, that he has to make decisions and um, that we all wrestle with, with getting ahead versus like being a good person. Well, that's yeah. the thing is that the system is inherently corrupting. Sure. Like in a way, um, I mean, I don't want to speak in too broad of a generality, but it's like, you feel like to participate in it, uh, on some level automatically forces you into these sorts of moral compromises. Yeah. And yeah. it's like, you have to make, like, I always, I always bemoan business relationships. Mm -hmm. I'm always like, oh fuck a business relationship, because then you have to sort of circumscribe your personality a little bit, because mm -hmm. what if the person, you know, you, you speak too freely and it mm -hmm. becomes, it's inappropriate for this business context. Mm -hmm. And you can't like, not that you need to, I, I don't need to like, uh, I don't know, go on some huge rant or something, but it's just that, like that feeling. And it's like, well, all of a sudden I'm tailoring my personality to make sure that like my best interests are not jeopardized Dude. by something I might say. And then how about social media? Like, uh, yeah, I, I, I mean, like, look at what's happening now. Like, I, I think Facebook is taking, they're, they're going to take a silver lining out of all that happened in 2016. And like, essentially how, how. Um, their shit was hacked to influence people, and they sold us out. And not only do they sell us out, but now they're they're capitalizing on it by just making everything. You can't things that people used to post and used to be more freely shared. They're get a fraction of the views they used to. And if you want to get it out to other people, everybody's you have to pay for promotion essentially, and everybody is becoming a marketer and a salesperson in, right. in their, in, like our entire lives are going and they're, they're just basically monetizing. They're like, okay, we're not going to just freely share your like shitty political memes anymore, but now you're going to pay for it. And everybody's going to be a salesperson and we're going to like monetize all of your personal relationships. Fuck that company. Yeah. Quit your Facebook. Yeah. 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 Well, I mean, I'm speaking of selling stuff. I'm trying to get a book up and out there, but you know, and, and, and that's something that I'm wrestling with. It's like, I would like to, on one level, but it's like the best way for me to be able to reach people and let them know well, that's the like thing. what's going on. But I'm like, you're, you're trapped yeah, in it. Yeah. And, and they know it and, and they're, they're squeezing everybody. And, 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 and just, if I could say for a moment, like how weird is it as a writer to go from this like mole person who's typing in your basement for you? This <laughs> book took me like almost a decade, you know, seven years of writing, three years of like figuring out what the, hell I, you know, wanted to, to do, or like, you know, dust, dust myself off after my first book, which was on a, on a side note was, you know, there's a big internet controversy around it and things got, that's good for sales though, isn't it? Maybe. I don't know. I'm not, I'm not really, there were just, 
I'm I'm not necessarily a proponent of all all publicity is good publicity. Um, I had I'm not, and this sounds kind of corny, but I'm like. I, I don't think I, I, I didn't, if, you, if you're getting into books to make money, you're probably making the wrong decision. Like I was trying to fulfill a creative vision and I, this gets back to the, the pistol whipping thing a little bit in a, a roundabout way. I, I had two chapters of that book I'd been working on. Um, I got a call through roundabout way. I got a call from a journalist at the New York times. We're doing a story about like the realities of being a travel writer on the road didn't interview, didn't think too much about it other than, yeah, okay, awesome. New York Times interviewed me. It was um, front page of the Sunday Style section with a picture of me. I was in the lead um, and arguably like the the, the protagonist of the – I don't know, protagonist, antagonist. The, the, yeah, the, <laughs> the person who was mainly featured in the article. I had an agent that week. I had a book proposal by the end of the month. The thing, and and I'm not trying to bemoan it at all. I'm I'm happy with the end product to a point, but it you know it's like anything else. The example I used before is like if you were starting a bakery and you'd never actually sold any bread yet, but you took investment early on, like you're necessarily going to start to lose control of that process. And like I you know I didn't like. First off, I was writing it as a novel, and then I was told, like, this, it was like a Romana Clay, and, and then they were like, no, this is going to be nonfiction, and this is what the title is going to be, and this is how the cover is going to look, and you need to rewrite the end of the book then once that was done, and you need to, oh my God. Uh, you know, and, and it just, it, yeah, I mean, some, some great things happened. I got to go to the Sydney Writers Conference and Auckland Writers Festival or whatever and and meet all sorts of like literary idols of mine and some really cool things like happen. Who? Uh JM Cutsia, Juno Diaz got to hang out with a bunch just like um yeah, uh, it was it was very cool. Um but there was a lot of controversy. I just I didn't want to do that all over again. And I so so I, I went back to the drawing board and was like, I'm going to write a novel, and I needed to like it all that whole first thing had happened so fast. And and again, I mentioned there was a big controversy, and a lot of people were just like, What was the controversy uh, before my book even came out? There was like a side controversy with Lonely Planet that didn't. It had already been in. I'm, I don't want to get too far into the weeds on this because we could talk about this for an hour. But there was a side controversy that had nothing to do with me earlier on about how they weren't sending writers to actually do writing on the ground. Uh, right, yeah. And I made sort of a like cavalier comment in an in interview I was doing. They, they asked me, so I heard that Lonely Plant doesn't send writers. Um, did, have you ever been not been sent to a place? And so I said, well, I, I worked on the most recent uh, Columbia guidebook. And I didn't go there for it, but I was the lead writer on it. I wasn't writing the, you know, I was doing the front of the book stuff, history, culture. And I'd been to Columbia a bunch of times and I was sort of like the, they had like a managing writer who oversaw the other writers. That was my job. Anyways. And uh, where the guy was like, well, where did you get your information? And I had a girlfriend at the time who worked at the Colombian consulate in, um, in San Francisco. 
And the way that it came out in the article was like made it sound like I had been paid to go to Columbia and I was just like mega douche guy who sat on the cash and got it from some chick I was dating. And, and, (laughs) you know, which I would argue if, you know, if you're not paid to go to a place that getting the information from the consulate is much better than Wikipedia research. It's actually not that, you know, that's a pretty solid research technique over there. But I was just pillared. Like I was on Fox and Friends and got like verbally abused by Steve Ducey. Did you really? Like, yeah. I like, and I thought of the best comeback like five minutes later uh, and I still course, like wake yeah. up at night and I'm just like, someday I'm going to run into Steve Ducey on the street in Manhattan. I'm going to be like, yeah. I'm going to get him, either sucker punch him or he doesn't even remember me. But, you know, um, but uh, yeah, I mean, so, so it all just got weird and got away from like what I set out to do. And, you know, and and if you're in it for money, you're better off. You're better off becoming an accountant or something. You know, it's like, and and so I, I I went back to the drawing board, and it was a weird point in life too because I got married, and I got married right after my first book came out. But we had children, and um, you know, I just didn't want writing to slip between my fingers. And I had people ask me if I was still, you know, all the time, are you still writing or is that like a hobby now? Or, um, and it was just like one foot in front of the other. And I said, I'm going to write something which is, you know, other people can love it or hate it, but it's pretty much my pure comedic take on where I grew up and, you know, and the culture around me then and my view of the world. And, um, yeah, and it took me a long ass time of sometimes not working on it for days on end, sometimes doing a couple edits on one page, and then sometimes I'd have like a really good day. But yeah, and getting back to what I was, uh, you know, feeling ecstatic when you have a really good day of writing, feeling like brutal when it's not going well, too. And that's also the downside of ambition, like puts you in a foul mood, and that affects my, you know, relationship with my wife. And, you know, not that I'm like, drinking bottles of whiskey and you know <laughs> destroying our house or anything but it's just like it's it's a it's a black cloud that trails you around and and yeah and sometimes i'm like why am i doing this it's thing? so frustrating yeah and and what and, and really so one thing i have going for me that made this possible is like i'm an insomniac or maybe that's not the right way to put it i can't go to bed at a reasonable hour if it were up to me i would go to bed at two in the morning and wake up at 10 every day but that's not my reality we have to get up at six forty-five in the morning for my son to be at school my wife goes to bed at nine o'clock the kids are in bed around then earlier um and i'm wide awake then so i get like a second wind where i can write from 10 p.m until one two in the morning and be maybe more clear-headed than actually definitely more clear-headed than I am at eight o'clock in the morning, nine o'clock in the morning. Interesting. So, um, yeah. And I feel like garbage the next morning and you pay for it. But, but basically by giving up sleep and by giving up socializing, like that's really, I, I, I still have a social life, but most of my social life revolves around us doing family things with other family friends. Um, but like, you know, I have a, a number of old friends who are like, you know, anytime they're like, let's go get a beer or go out. I'm like, no, sorry, I can't. You know, if it's a special occasion. Um, but yeah, you, you give up a lot. You give up on fitness. You give up on, you know, the, but but I sleep. can't give up fitness. Yeah, no, I, I but can't. My give writing up suffers, I think. Yeah, no, I mean, you're, you, you can't totally give up fitness. You can't totally give up socializing. You can't totally give up sleep. All those things would. But um, I would exercise more if I weren't writing. Um, I would socialize more. 
Um, but you know, when it's short of my relationship with my children and my wife, I should say, um, but short of those, those very personal relationships, um, you know, writing when the writing is going well, that's the most fulfilling thing to me in the world. It's more, um, you know, that's like that transcendental moment where, you know, everything sort of makes sense. And I feel, I feel at peace. I get, I get little bits of it also. Like I'm really into skiing. Um, and I get that skiing and just being in the mountains too, um, and and some mountain biking too. Um, but it's in a slight, obviously a, a more cerebral way when you're writing and, and I'm just addicted to it. You know, it's not, I, I think, you know, most, most other writers I know too, no, nobody's really doing it as a hobby or because they think that it's fun. It's like, you have to, like, I look at, you know, John Evison, who, um, is, is a friend of mine and has, has greatly helped me, um, you know, with this process. And he's like, he's like the most productive writer I've seen, but he's just like, he he's just a maniac. Steps, yeah. He's a maniac. <laughs> he just steps up and does it again and again and again and again. As he says, like, if I weren't doing this, I'd be like mainlining heart drugs or something. It's like, it has to be a compulsion to push through, um, you know, and if, you know, if you're maybe not feeling it, if one's not feeling it on that level, then maybe, you know, do so. I don't know, do something else. I don't know. It's, it's, it's not. Yeah. I mean, I, I've had a lot of, this has been uh, some high highs and some low lows getting to this point, but sure. Yeah. Well, and it's like, I don't know, like think, I sometimes think to myself, like maybe the way to do it in a way that is, I don't know, I don't want to say most pure because that sounds too, um, no, but that's what you're going for is, is purity. Right. And it should be that like the most, like the healthiest mm-hmm. approach would be to write with no real financial ambition. Like if like you could somehow, I mean, you have your day job that pays your rent and puts food on the table and you write for the love of the game and to reach other people and to help other people. It doesn't matter how many, it could be one, mm-hmm. could be zero. You do for, it nourishes you. Mm-hmm. Well, that's art, right? And you not, publish that, under a pseudonym yeah. and you do like very, maybe you'd like, it's like, what's the lady, Elena Ferrante, mm-hmm. Banksy. I mean, I guess they both made a mint, but that's fine. Yeah. But you don't know who they are. They're mm-hmm. not famous. I mean, I guess their mm-hmm. names are famous, but they have completely removed themselves. Mm-hmm. I mean, n- almost no writers are real famous. Like I know. Famous, famous. Like J.K. Rowling could walk into a cafe around here and very few people would actually recognize her. That's true. Um, uh, I, yeah, I totally hear what you're saying. I, I, you know, and I'm fortunate that in the intervening years... I, I, a really good influence that I have is is from my wife, who my wife's an immigrant, right? And she is not at all caught up in any of this creative career stuff. She's like, "Are you making money from it? Does it? You know, <laughs> can you pay rent with it? This doesn't matter, right. you know." And she's very much uh, calls it like she sees it, which I often say is like the best part of our marriage and the worst part of our marriage is that like, sometimes I just don't want to hear what she has to say, but there's (laughs) also not this sort of Pacific Northwest dodging, like is something the matter? Like, no, it's like out her mouth and like, um, reality. Yeah. But she's, she has, um, kept me, you know, in, in sort of the hard years, 
you know, and then around 2008, 2009 came within a hair of being bankrupt. I essentially was bankrupt and was only like saved out of that by my wife, like really hard times. And then I started, I started writing, um, for, for a blog a, a little bit and doing more and more commercial writing work. And now I've moved on to video and it's been really good to me over the last few years. And, um, it's been a positive thing. What do you mean video? Um, I do a lot of video for like Xbox and uh, uh, Microsoft Story Labs. Those are my, my two main clients. Microsoft Story Labs is, is my, my main one. I have a great relationship with them. And um, I do – that's their experimental storytelling group. And so just basically applying – narrative to all sorts. We've done podcast project, worked with Gimlet on that, um, doing 360 video animation series. And sure, it's all, it's all branded work, but it's, um, exercising that narrative muscle a bit. Right. Um, I'm able to pay my bills and was able to write this book. It was free as that started to move forward more and more. I was able to write this book and not be like, I need this to work out, you know, and that's what happened on my first book. I, I, I bent over every time they were like, we need it to be this way because like we need to, you know, and they were, they were like, because we, you know, we want you to go with this title because we're planning to really highly feature this book and we'd hate to not be able to do that. And I was like, yes, yes. Okay. Whatever you say. And then, you know, how much do you really make? It was a semi successful book, but like in the end, like, what is that? That's like, you know. Do you feel like it was compromised in the process, like in terms of like your own personal vision, like what the end product versus like your truest expression or like what you wanted yeah, it to be? Yeah, for sure. For sure. And, and, and that's why I'm very, uh, I'm very proud of Lake City and, and my relationship with Counterpoint, going with an independent publisher that really supported my creative vision for it. And my, my editor, Harry Kirchner, and everybody else that I've worked with there have been it's just been a totally different experience. Just getting back to what you were saying before. Yeah, I didn't publish under a pseudonym, but I've been fortunate that like I'm such a sellout, dude. Yeah, I know. (laughs) I'm like, but that's just like Lane. I'm still, I'm still, you know, my ego is still in here. Like I wouldn't, I would, you know, and, and, uh, he's he's the protagonist of this book is all of my worst insecurities about myself taken to an extreme and he's he's a status chaser and wants to live in this world of ideas and sure like anybody who's writing a novel like you you know you're you're chasing something but um yeah it's been it's been just a way more positive fulfilling process overall um and uh yeah so well and here you are here I am. Are you working on another book? I am. Um, so this one, Lake City, takes place in 2001 in Seattle. I'm, I'm ways into the next one that takes place in 2008. And then I have an idea for a third one that takes place in 2014. The second one is more about fathers and sons. And uh, it's about um, – takes place over, like at a Cub Scout jamboree weekend <laughs> trip. And it has to do with uh, the rise of digital media and internet controversies, maybe some, a little bit of my experience of uh, getting pilloried online. Were you a Cub Scout? I was a Cub Scout, yeah. A Weeblow? I was, yeah. I got the arrow light. I was like, I was a little, you know, I've always, I'm, I'm kind of a Type A dude, and I was like, I was like the badge collector guy. I was the guy who's like, I want to have every, I'm gonna, you know, full metal jacket. Yeah, and I was like in a money ball at two by like, you know, like when. 
Like China, how China got ahead in in the Olympics would rack up medals on all these like rhythmic gymnastics and all these sports. <laughs> They're like, I'm gonna get all the like the Libris book reading ones, and, like just you know, I'm gonna get the model boat one, all the side stuff, and just like yeah, stack yeah. it up because I had to have as many as possible. So yeah, I was I was uh, I was I went for it. You're an achievement machine. I don't know about that, and not anymore. I, I, I yeah, I mean, but again, like. It, I burn. I was. I was in. I did swimming as a kid too, and I think that was like so competitive. And it's all about shaving, like shaving fractions of seconds off, and competing for spots. And that, like, I peaked as like an eleven-year-old or something. Yeah. And I swam all the way through freshman year of college, but it was just like, like the competition thing, and like, yeah. The, the, Here's it, the thing. It, Here's it, it all burnt. It, it's all burned me out on some level. It's a, that that downside of ambition thing. Well, that, here's uh, what I was saying to myself the other day. I don't want to win. <laughs> yeah, there you go. Because if I win, somebody loses. There you go. I don't want somebody to lose. Well, you're a nicer person than I am. I'm, <laughs> I'm okay with somebody. But is that? I, I, mean, I don't I, want to hurt. I don't want to hurt anybody else. It's but not I'm, entirely true because, like, part of me does want to win. Uh-huh. I mean, I, I, I mean, right? We all want to have like we all want to thrive. I fucking hate that word. I want to thrive. Uh, but you know what I'm saying? Yeah. Like you don't want to. You want to do well. And Thrive's like a healthy growing plant. Like <laughs> grass is thriving. You want to have. I you want to be like a healthy lawn. I want to flower. Yeah. Yes. But flowers, you know, they grow in manure. You know. But it's yeah. like uh, I just feel like. Like, that's the thing. That's that's like that's what sort of like where I get stuck. It's like wow, to win, somebody's got to lose, mm-hmm. and maybe that's not true. Can we? Is it? I mean, because it seems a little bit Pollyanna-ish to think that like we can all be winners, but it's really not the case, right? Well, it depends. Depends what game you're playing or what what situation. But, but there's but, only but, so many seats at the table. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I mean, but again, that's like I I, I think that we're. It's not like you make one decision and that's where you are and you're a good person for life or you make one decision and, you know, short of, you know, certain things, you, you know, once you kill somebody, there's no, you know, there's no going back on that. But they're, they're, in, in little micro ways, we're always like making these decisions in our own best interest or in, you know, for other people. And it, it feels good. It feels good also to make decisions that uh, help other people. I would say in the last couple of years that, that my... Um, all the digital content stuff that I've been doing has been going much better and I've had like better budgets coming in. It feels so good to be able to be generous with people to, um, that's, that's a beautiful thing. Um, uh, John Hodgman, I've been reading his book vacation land. He, he's, you know, he's really great just talking about like adult boring stuff and making it funny. But that's what he was saying was one of the, one of the, and, 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 and I could relate to that. One of the best things is he started to get ahead a little bit, being able to just like help other people out. That feels, that feels great. Um, and that's the appropriate response to getting any kind of uh largesse or status. That's the healthy response. Yeah. Right. I'd like to think so, but I mean, but everybody's, but everybody, yeah, everybody's, everybody's different. So, and yeah, but some people, some people are right. <laughs> yeah. I like that. Yeah. So, or some people I, like have a healthier approach. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, somebody, somebody told me that one time is that like, you need to stop trying to look at both sides of the argument all the time and just like no, but recognize that there's right and wrong. And that, you know, I, I think I it's know. good to have like a broad view and to be skeptical of oneself and like to not be fixed. Like, you know, I definitely, um, but like, like just to pose like a related question that yeah. I've been chewing on lately, mm-hmm. it's like, 
I don't want to impinge upon somebody's liberty, mm-hmm. like personal liberty, mm-hmm. individual freedom, which mm-hmm. is like the uh, end all be all for the uh, Randians, you mm-hmm. know, that we were talking about earlier. But I think about somebody like Jeff Bezos, just to like point to a popular example, especially this week mm-hmm. <laughs> with his uh, like nude selfies circulating or whatever. I hadn't heard about that. I hear he's getting a divorce. Yeah, though, so. it's like, you know, I, and you know what? That's I don't the first even... thing you do is start to uh, <laughs> get in the Actually, that, that the aspect of him, flirting game. I have real empathy because I think that's shit, you know, when somebody's personal stuff like that is, I don't. Yeah, I haven't, I haven't heard about this yet, but, but I'm I, sure I will before the day's over. Yeah, exactly. yeah. See that, see things that I can't take back. But, but all of that shoved to the side. Like just the the basic math of somebody sitting on one hundred fifty four billion dollars, while his warehouse employees are reported to be like working under like excruciating inhumane conditions, is like just an like an almost unforgivable obscenity yeah. to me. So so one of one of the things that that so Seattle's always been a big company town, you know, Boeing, Microsoft. But the thing there was an unwritten rule that these companies had to play a positive role and and we don't have a state income tax when well, that's one of the reasons that Bezos moved to Seattle in 1994 and decided to start his company side note he's from Albuquerque originally and Bill Gates started Microsoft in Albuquerque before moving it back to Seattle so with a small different twist of fate all of this could be happening in Albuquerque and maybe <laughs> Seattle would have it's, been the setting of Breaking Bad but I was going to say yeah. I was going to say instead so, Albuquerque is the meth yeah, capital of yeah, America so so again the world things things happen in weird ways but but a lot of the backlash against Amazon is that you know Bezos he comes from you know, I mean, he was a computer science guy, but had worked in finance prior, and he's he's more of a libertarian, and he hasn't really played the company hasn't played that role in the city, and they're just you know, and they've outgrown. They're they're, they're capable now. They're, we tried to institute this head tax in in Washington, which may have been a, a, a wrongheaded, um, no pun intended, uh, uh, idea. I. I I don't know. Um, but but they were able to just like bully the mayor and the, you know, no problem. Well, this is know. the question that I was getting to, mm-hmm. which is I don't want to uh, I don't want to um, quash somebody's personal liberty. I don't mm-hmm. want somebody to quash my personal liberty. Mm-hmm. I want to be free to make the choices that I want to make as long as they're not hurting other people, mm-hmm. pursue my dream or you know what I'm saying? Like, mm-hmm. I get that. I think mm-hmm. individual liberty is a real thing to be valued. Mm-hmm. But I have limited faith in the idea, you know, this libertarian idea. Um, I have big problems with libertarianism, mm-hmm. uh, just based on the facts, it seems. But it's mm-hmm. like I have limited faith in this idea that individual human beings can be counted on or corporations can be counted on doing the right thing because they know it's right. You know, and that you don't need to have some sort of um, no, bullshit. collective yeah. mechanism like a like a tax or, you know, there has to be something to force the hand of people to do the right yeah. thing. Because, you know, it's like, oh, you know what? If you give them their money back, their hard earned money that they've been making, usually it's like passive income that the stock market's been spitting back into their bank account. And you just give them more of their own hard-earned money. People should be able to make much better decisions than the government should ever be able to make with it. And you know what happens? They transfer huge amounts of wealth to their children, which creates um, a class system, an oligarchy, or they just buy like second, third, fourth, fifth homes. And I'm speaking in generalities here because some people do do the right thing. But it's like they're not putting it back into 
infrastructure, education, healthcare, maybe mm-hmm. in little bits and pieces, but yeah. $154 billion? Mm-hmm. It seems like a moral offense yeah. to me. There's a guy named Nick Hanauer in Seattle, and he's like a venture capitalist. He was, I think he was the first non um, family investor in Amazon. So he made, he's done quite well for himself, and his family was already well off in the first place to be able to be an investor. But he's been of the billionaires, like really starting to, to talk out a bit. And he's just saying, Hey, let's, you know, when this kind of wealth disparity happens, you know, what happens next is pitchforks. Like this is in our, we need in our best interest to be, um, you know, and there've been a lot of points in history that like the great wealth was really in ostentatious wealth was really frowned upon. Right. Um, and you know, um, but, but I, I think these people might want to go with this because because there are only so many walls you can build before shit totally starts to you know that people are going to revolt but i don't know like there's everything that we know to this point might all be going out the window too with what's happening with technology and the all of our understanding of politics and economics might have to be completely reimagined in the coming years and i really do believe why because of like ai and robots because of ai and robots that that i think a lot of unskilled jobs and many skilled jobs that nobody wants to nobody wants to employ and deal with another human being if they have a piece of technology that can do it more efficiently uh more cheaply 24 hours a day 24 hours a day and not like I work with freelancers all the time and like a lot of people I like and, but you're still getting in other people's heads and their problem with their wife and their this and the that. And it's like, becomes all taxing. <laughs> you just have like a piece of technology that did it. It's like, it's kind of attractive. Like eventually you know, there's not anything going to be podcasters. There's just going to be like some robot. Yeah. Well, I mean, questions. no, I mean, it's the, it's the, the arts are going to be like one of the remaining things that, I mean, they already have AI that, that the, they fed like all the Harry Potter books to and wrote new chapters of Harry Potter. Like they're gonna they're going to be AI books and whatnot. But I think people will there'll be there's also gonna be a tech backlash, sort of similar to, you know, in the nineteen fifties, everybody's like, we're all gonna have frozen meals and the convenience of canned goods and everything's gonna be amazing and we're gonna have all this convenience on food. And people are like, wait a minute, maybe this isn't what we want. Maybe we wanna, you know, do and then you have but it but it also becomes more of an elite thing, the the whole farm to table, like you have to have a certain certain means to ex- access those kind of foods. I think there's the, there's already a tech backlash brewing and, and people by the want way, let me handmade stuff. Let's just pass let's just press fast forward. I'm going to tell you the future mm. you, we don't want this fucking robot shit well they're gonna they're gonna kill I, us no i well, well i don't think that they're gonna kill us i think that it's gonna rapidly unemploy like 20 or 30 percent of the population which could kill, and, and which they're could gonna kill, kill us they're gonna kill us so yeah. that's what i'm what i you know which is essentially like what nick hannah was saying about the pitchforks coming but it's like you know, people are people are going to um, be made redundant, and and not just taxi drivers or you know Uber drivers or truck drivers. Yeah, all that stuff is going, but it's also going to be a lot of lawyers, um, doctors, and and again, it's not like on one side. You could have a robot if, if when you're having a very specific like surgery done. A, a, a human hand with a scalpel versus, a, you know, some. Th- there's going to be one doctor who's savvy in technology overseeing, you know, a robotic arm that can do things precision, you know, to like a fraction of a millimeter, m- nano yeah. uh, meter. 
And um, that's going to be a better thing in certain ways. And, and But it's going to unemploy a lot of the other staff around there. And, like, what are all these people? I mean, we're going to have to have real serious conversations about, like, universal basic income. And people are going to be living in video game porn virtual reality universes where they take some sort of drug to suspend disbelief and, like, Wait date. Wait a minute. This um, is sounding good, actually. Let's yeah. <laughs> well, I mean, we're going to be there, – there's, there's weird stuff is – weird stuff is coming. Very know, quickly. man. I like robot armies. Soldiers are going to be out of work. Yeah. And like robot armies terrify me because that shit in the wrong hands is going to go sideways quickly. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I, I mean, that's Terminator. That. That's what I'm saying. They're yeah. going to kill us, dude. They're going to loose these things on us. And the, then they're going to like, you know, these, this AI is eventually going to get so sophisticated that they're going to wind up becoming self-aware I mean, you can just see where it's headed. Yeah. Well, that's the, that's the dystopian. Like, so I work with a bunch of people in the tech industry, and on their utopian view is that we're going to all live this this great life supported by yeah. these things that are going to make everybody more efficient and happier. And and it will for a certain class of people who have the right skill set and the right kind of gumption uh, are going to like make enormous wealth off of this. And then a lot of people. And I'm not not just people who are poor now, but people who are in a lot of traditional careers who might actually be well off now. They're going to have their entire world upended. This is like, this is like uh, industrial revolution, like breaking up feudal system type stuff. Everything's about to to get reimagined, and it's going to get really weird. And um, you know what I think of when I think of people talking about this, like you know, semi utopian technological future with the robots and AI and shit. They start talking like that, and I start to hear like Mark Zuckerberg going, "Facebook's going to connect the world. We're bringing people together." Oh, and it's like, you know what? Shit, it's such bullshit. Yeah. I don't like every time tech. You know, listen, technology has its place, and I know that these things are ultimately only tools, and it depends on how we use them. And I get that whole line of right. logic, but people who evangelize for technology in that way share way too much similarity with people who like evangelize religion. Yeah. <laughs> you know, it's like, yeah, there's no. like, it's like, dude, t- take it down a notch. You know, this stuff is not going to solve our problems and make the world better. Like we have to fundamentally work on ourselves as a species. Technology is a religion and will be like increasingly, you know, I'm, I'm this isn't my idea. I'm stealing it from other people, but you know, that there's going to be like, data religions coming up and yeah. like, you know, and, and Silicon Valley will be the birthplace of the next big religion. But yeah, look at Zuckerberg. You think Zuckerberg cares about personal relationships? That guy probably has like, <laughs> he's, you know, he has a relationship with his wife and maybe his mom and, 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 and the like, Russian oligarchs who funded Facebook yeah, 10 years ago. Yeah, or whatever. Seriously. Like, I mean, whatever, dude. Um, but yeah, I, like I know people that work for Facebook and I always see people talking about like they'll post, you know, and then they have to like use Facebook all the time and talk about it's so great to work with this team of people who's trying to you know improve the world i was like you are uh, fuck off dude. yeah like fuck you drag off, the kool-aid is like spilling down your shirt yeah it's, it's a but, bad look yeah <laughs> just quit if you work at facebook fucking quit go on strike like you gotta you gotta we gotta put an end to this you yeah. know like there's got to be some sort of revolt like this shit is bad for people I, I think in the in the backlash, I think that that Facebook is starting to see like a drop off in users. I mean, younger younger generation is thinks it's like, oh, that's my parents' stuff. I wouldn't be caught on Facebook, but you know they're all over Instagram, which is still a Facebook company. Right. Facebook and you know and WhatsApp is huge in a lot of uh, countries, um, but. Um, I think that there will be in part of the backlash of technology. There, there will be new social networks that are um, ethical. Yeah, 
Well, I think what's going to happen is, is that people are going to like pay increasingly for, we'll look back at this time and be like, wow, it was crazy how um, open people were on the internet and how much they share to themselves. Well, it was like an unreg. It's basically an unregulated public utility at mm-hmm. this point. I think mm-hmm. social media needs yeah. to be like I'm. I am. I find the logic or the line or the argument that that social media at the scale that it's at now is a public utility, like telephone service and internet service, definitely electricity argument there. Yeah, you know, and so there's got to be uh, some controls put on it in terms of how it can be used and who can access it. Right now, it's just like the wild west. And again, this goes back to what I was talking about with respect to, um, you know, this libertarian uh, versus a more collectivist or socialist approach to however you want to put Mm -hmm. it. You can't count on people when money is flowing, Mm -hmm. you know, in general Mm -hmm. to make decisions that are in the best interest of ordinary people. They're just going to line their pockets. It's like human nature cannot be counted on. There have to be regulations. Yeah. And I've, you know, I've met some libertarians who are really good on their talking points and make it sound really persuasive to point. But the the one thing for me also is like the, the tragedy of the commons too. It's like, you know, who's going to stop people from unloading because it's cheaper to unload your, you know, lead based runoff from your factory into the into the nearby stream like and there's no getting that stuff back either everybody's going to be pissing in the public space and you know that's that's one of the biggest heartbreakers for me is just the the ongoing impact to the environment of all this because there's no there's no getting that back well that's the Uh, thing it's like so it seems so obvious that like profit motive and consideration of the public good are often at cross purposes and a corporation, for example, is not designed and cannot survive unless it's generating profit. And if it is left unchecked and there comes time where they're at a crossroads mm-hmm. and the issue is profit versus responsibility, most of these corporations are going to choose profit. So if you don't check them, then they're going to, it's going to be, it's going to run amok. And yeah. that's what we've seen. And like, um, I don't mean to like soapbox it, but like, I feel like, I feel like if there's libertarian listening to this and is thinking, well, no, fuck this guy. Like, I, I, I feel like there's a level, a level of grayness and complexity to the conversation that should absolutely be there. I'm not saying that we have to have some sort of like, um, extreme collectivist approach to life. Uh, into the way that we organize ourselves. I think that there has to be some sort of medium. Mm -hmm. And I think that things as a fundamental law of nature inter are, um, we're all connected. So that means that like dark and light, (laughs) Mm -hmm. you know, left and right, Mm -hmm. you can see the way in nature, these things, you know, there, there's, um, an interconnectivity and that there is an illusoriness to this idea that we are all individual selves with no real connection or responsibility to our neighbors, both mm-hmm. in, in the immediate sense and in the more planetary sense. But I also believe that there is a interbeingness to individual liberty mm-hmm. and collective responsibility. Yes. There's a legitimacy to individual liberty and to the arguments mm-hmm. around individual liberty. You don't want to uh, impinge. Is mm-hmm. it impinge or infringe? It's impinge. Yeah. They both you know, work, I think, in that, uh, I yeah. would say, infringe or impinge. So it's like, let's have a conversation around the tension space between those two things where we can hopefully respectfully acknowledge that both are legitimate. Yeah. 
but that, and this is where I would push the argument that mm-hmm. collective responsibility is the deeper reality yeah. and individual liberty is important, but is not, it should not be, um, the primary consideration when we're making big decisions about how we live and how we organize ourselves. I, I agree with you. And I think that, um, just to bring it back to the book for a second, I think, no, but no, no, seriously. Because these considerations no, are No, but you're looking, you're looking at it on, on the higher political level, but I think that that's very much what this is about, is as an individual on this path and trying to make decisions in, you know, it, it, this is on the, on the micro level, not the macro level in the, in the politics of, of daily life of him getting ahead and what's in his best interest versus his, his interest in his relationship with his mom, who's the person who's got him to this point, whether he recognizes that or not, whether with this, um, this woman, Nina, who is sort of the moneyed interest that can you know, open doors for him. And this other woman who can't offer him money, Inez, who can't offer him money herself, but is like, is he going to do right by her as a member of his community and somebody who's, from his home neighborhood, but is worse off than him. Is he going to step on her to get ahead to, you know, essentially connect with this capitalist or is he going to do right by his community? Um, and in, in a way that may not be in his best interest overall. So I, I, you know, again, that's really my, my main theme in this book. How does it end? Uh, yeah, I'm not telling you. Yeah, but 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 I I'll, I don't I don't it it has a complicated ending and I don't put a bow on it because there's no there's no answer. You know, there's no there there's 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 not no it's not that there's no answer that there's there's not a there's not a right and wrong. But on the micro level, we are tasked with many of these decisions in different experiences. And it, it's all, I think I would argue that it's all a work in progress. And, yeah. you, can't, you can't, you can't yeah. bat a thousand. And yeah. like, if you're intellectually honest and you're trying to, um, I don't know, like be real about things and, and deal in reality, then you're going to be operating in this gray area, this tension space between the two polarities or whatever, trying to navigate that. And, well, and it's, yeah, it's the, the, the country and the time that we live in too. It's like, we don't live in a collective community of 150 humans and, uh, you know, in a little farm community where we all have our roles and we're all related. And like, it's where we're in this ma- you know, uh, 320 million people and, in, you know, hardcore capitalism and ruthless cities and like, dude, living in Los Angeles, living in Seattle, um, you know, I hear everything you're saying about the collective, but he, I don't know. Like, I, I, the, by the way, I'm sitting here like evaluating in my own head. I'm like, do I sound fucking annoying? No, you don't. No, I, I agree with everything that you're saying. I just my uh, what's happened in the last few years has shaken my understanding of the world a little bit, though. The maybe the. um Election of Trump uh, put an exclamation point on it, but one of the things for me, and that one one thing that um, an argument that they're having in the book about like this idea, this progressive idea that if people just knew more and learned more and 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 understood 
that we would start to move forward towards this just and better future. But I think with the Affordable Care Act, when that came out, that was really in a way like I was a big Obama supporter. I still am. And I wasn't one of the people to like be like, oh, he didn't achieve like yeah, I'm, me I'm, too. I'm me still too. I'm still strongly a supporter. But but, you you know, with the. Um, when the ACA came out, there's just always a percentage of people who are going to be contrarian that are that are going to, you know, I, I it changed and and that when you have such a high percentage of people who fun have a fundamentally different worldview, um, they, they they just I, I think they understand humanity differently. Um, How so? I think they just understand the role of the individual in society differently, or they, you know, or they have a faith-based approach to humanity, um, which which shows them, um, you know, which which sets up different value systems. I, you know, I think that underpinning, um, you know, conservatism or progressivism are, um, are yeah, are, are slightly different takes on on the role of the individual, the role of just just the nature the nature of life and humanity. Um, maybe not. Some people just like to eat up whatever talking points they hear on TV or do want, do want to do what their parents want to do. But I think that they still absorb on a lower level from those things, like a, a different, uh, a, you know, a different understanding of how the world works. And so, like, what happened with the ACA and all that freakout? I was just kind of like. Because to me, it was like everything that Obama was saying or doing seemed so rational. And I was so happy to have somebody in the presidency who was like smart and rational. And I was like, but, you know, the United States is not the Netherlands. And I mean, the Netherlands has like, you know, had like Pim for Toyn and all these like they have crazy shit going on, too. But they would be like, oh, you know, we had some war crimes in Kosovo 10 years ago or 15 years ago in 1995. And the current administration has some ties to that. We should just drop, you know, we should reorganize, like reelect the entire cabinet right now because that would never happen in the United States. People go down with, the, you know, it's like, I'm going to push my viewpoint until the day I die and you're never going to, I, I, I just have, I, I hear everything that you're saying about collectivism, but I just don't know if the, this society here want uh, that enough of us, enough of us want it. I want it. You want it. We live in L.A. and Seattle. There's a big part of, you know, in in Seattle, right in the outside. People think that Seattle is like this super blue spot. But like, yeah, maybe a little bubble inside parts of the city. You go 10 feet out of town. A lot of people don't feel that way at all. And there's and they feel like violently opposed to that. You know what? Uh, I think we, this is where I like and I, I go to these places, too, because mm-hmm. I, I've had these I have these same sorts of thought mm-hmm. cycles. And I'm just like I get so frustrated. I'm just like fucking ayahuasca just everybody just need like i don't know i mean it's an absurd no it's an absurd kind of joke but it's like everybody like what's gonna foment the kind of disruptive change of perspective that it seems like it would take like is it going to take some sort of horrible cataclysm that's did you i see you got uh michael pollan's how to change your mind oh michael pollan was another person i got to know on that first book tour was he in the middle of his uh psychedelic journey at that point (laughs) no he was uh I forget if it was Omnivore's Dilemma or what, but I got to sit next to him on a plane and talk to him a bunch and have coffee and drinks with him. And he's he's a beautiful human being. Yeah. Um, and I really loved How to Change Your Mind. I'll tell you something. Um, speaking 
this is going to come back to ayahuasca. So bear with me a second. Um, you know, so we legalized, uh, cannabis before you guys did in California. And I'm actually doing for my book, I'm doing like a cannabis partnership with, um, with like a joint pre-roll pack with like Lake city, like it's just it's mainstream. And I'm working with these guys that I met like at drop off at, uh, my son's preschool. And like, these guys have weed companies. 2019 and like, baby. Yeah. And so we're doing, and, and so all the liberal ideas about like, okay, legalizing marijuana, um, yeah, there isn't like a spike in crime and like weed junkies going around and raping people. Please. But on the flip side, the conservative argument that this is like going to open us up to other things like the, the whole vape market now. Um, there are, uh, there's all sorts of stuff coming in. I haven't personally seen a meth vape, but I've been told that there are meth vapes from friends who have seen meth vapes in Seattle. And, um, don't vape. Who's well, vaping? dude, they're DMT vapes though. Okay, that's I, fine. I know that for a fact. <laughs> um, I'm not going to get into it much beyond that. But DMT vape makes ayahuasca essentially, you know, takes away the whole barfing. And I mean, it's it, it's outside of the ritual then. But are you still seeing like the the female deity like in your psychedelic experience? The, um, mother well, Aya it's, coming it's at you? you know as with all vaping, it's hard to uh, you don't necessarily achieve quite the same level. Um, if I'm doing it, I'm puking. Yeah. Okay. You're gonna to, you're gonna go for it. Oh yeah. I want to yeah. barf into a bucket. I want <laughs> I to hate, purge. I hate barfing. I've always hated barfing. Nobody uh, loves it. Yeah. But now some people just do it like sneezing and move on with their life. And then <laughs> for me, it's like barfing for me is like my mom getting on a long distance flight. Like it's like terrifying and something that I feel like it's a total loss of control. And I don't want. Yeah. I'm I not, had that as a kid. I didn't. Yeah. Want, I didn't want. Like I had a bad puke. I think yeah. once, and I was like, okay, I don't want to do that again. Yeah. And I would hold it in. Yeah. But now I'm just like, if I have to barf, it's happening. Yeah. So you're, you've, you've matured more than I have, but, <laughs> uh, but, but DMT vapes come into, coming to a town near you. That shit's real. And but DMT all- is like a site, you know, it's a, for those people listening, like my understanding of it, um, for those people listening who don't have context, it's like DMT is a psychedelic that is, uh, by comparison, remarkably short in duration. Yeah, it's so good. It's good for a dad. Yeah, it's good for a dad. <laughs> you, know, like, you can. You've only you got can, fifteen minutes. Yeah, <laughs> you can. You can step off the space time continuum for five to fifteen minutes, and then come back and like make cocoa for your children. So it's. Uh, so, but I mean, uh, I've never done it. So it's like my my question always is like, well, what's the? I know it's like a five or. Two, it tastes tastes like burn smoking burning tires, which is really unpleasant. But and then it's got yeah, that once fire tire. Once the experience is done, like, is it? Fire. Are you pretty free? clear or is it like you gotta you need like a few hours to like readjust to reality no you're a little roped afterwards but it's not like you're i'm in it it depends how much you ingest but you're pretty functional yeah see i like my take on stuff drive a school bus afterwards like vaping i guess you have to smoke dmt right so i guess you maybe a dmt vape is the way to go but like I'm generally uh, like vaping bums me out. Yeah, I hear you. I was just in in terms. It's gross. It's gross. I'm just saying in terms of tobacco, ma- but it's all mainstreaming, and that's what tobacco companies know too. Is like you know after years of declining sales, they're just jizzing themselves right now. Fuck with, them. You don't because like learning how to smoke a. I I never was into smoking cigarettes because I always thought it was really. Um, like I, tobacco never agreed with me and uh, tastes really dry and gross, but a vape, it's like. Anybody can ingest that. And they like have a, candy flavors and stuff. Oh, yeah. Yeah. I mean, um, I'm a big fan of like, illegal, you know, decriminalizing cannabis, rescheduling psychedelics, making it more expensive and harder to get cigarettes. Um, fuck alcohol, even. 
Like I, I like a glass of uh, wine or a whiskey or whatever, but like, come on. Yeah. Well, I was talk- on the you. way over here. I was talking with the Uber driver about there was a big cannabis sign on the side of the road. And we were talking about people and, you know, how many people are still in jail. And in Washington, they just um, anybody who is in jail or has a, a weed crime on the record, they've expunged, expunged that. Good. Uh, you know, if you have a if you have violent crime on top of that, you're going to end up staying in jail. But the. Um, and we were talking, we were talking about that. And then we were talking about alcohol and I was like, alcohol, I've done a lot of partying in my life and, um, smoked a lot of weed and drink. I like, I like drink. I have a soft spot for beer, unfortunately, which is, uh, uh, I don't know. It's, it's enjoyable, but, uh, it's a lot of, it's a lot of calories and, uh, <laughs> slowing me down. I feel that I feel a, the impact. Such more. a middle-aged dad, bro, man, it's beer. It's well, just, uh, you know, I'm it's, not, it's like, yeah, well, fortunately I have the same thoughts. Like, again, I'm not, I'm not the kind of like. Well, I am going to say the point I was getting at is that that alcohol is the only drug that's ever made me barf on myself and fall over. I have I have never messed around with heroin. I I, I hear that that can do a lot of the same, but alcohol is a very strong drug. Alcohol fucks people up and kills people all the time, every single day. It is a hard, hard drug. Now it can be ingested in lower levels, and some people have a healthy or healthy-ish relationship with not a healthy that or not an unhealthy relationship. That's that's that that's maybe how you should put. But used in heavier doses, it is a harder drug than most things that are considered harder drugs that, you know, at least in my experience. Yeah. And like, I'm not like, this is the thing because weed can fuck you up. Yeah. People can in your brain turn inward, you turn, you turn stupid, Mm -hmm. you get paranoid, Paranoid, you know, but you could smoke a garbage bag of weed and it's not going to kill you. You could eat. You know, like a, a half a pound of mushrooms and it might scramble your brain, but it's not going to kill you. Yep. You drink a bottle of whiskey, could kill you. Yes. You smoke cigarettes, could kill you. Yes. These things, you know, so. Yeah. But I mean, that's a, that's a cultural thing too. What we've decided is okay and not okay. And there's a lot of, I mean, I would argue a lot of racist history over the relationship with like marijuana and law enforcement in the past was just like, this is, this is stuff that Mexicans are bringing in, you know, it was always the Mexicans bringing drugs into our country and that like black people who listen to like sexually driven devil music are smoking in the, in the South in the, you know, in the 1930s or whatever, um, yeah, I don't know. The, all the drug policy is crazy. And the, like the difference between crack and cocaine is a joke. And like, you know, I mean, it's all the, the difference between crack and cocaine is like the, the difference between like wine and malt liquor. They're still, you're still delivering alcohol to your, you know, you're still delivering the same drug to your system. There, there will be meth, uh, crack vapes probably very soon. I would imagine that their crack is about to get a massive rebrand and somebody's <laughs> going to get make millions because, because cocaine and cocaine and alcohol is, you know, it's like peanut butter and jelly together. People are just like, right. if you could just take just a quick little, it won't be crack because they have, they have a poor brand, but just like a quick hit off the Coke vape and not have to go and put a bunch of powder off of the back of some grungy toilet in a bathroom up your nose. And just, just to keep you uh, clear and focused as you continue to like run up a big bar tab, like that shit's that shit's gonna be big in LA. By the way, for those of you listening, uh, Thomas and his uh, next book about the Cub Scout troop is going to address the difference between crack vapes and coke vapes. <laughs> it's all part of a big, uh, beautiful. Thank you. I, I have a few plot points missing still, so thank you for <laughs> filling, helping me fill in uh, 
where I was going with all that. Yes, I'm a little lost in the middle of the second act now. So Well, it's good to meet you. Very nice to Glad meet to you. Glad to spotlight the book in the book club. Yeah. Um, congrats on the success. I wish you well in navigating this weird uh, morass uh, where, you know, you're trying to uh, live a good life and uh, thrive, but do it in a way that uh, doesn't suck. Yeah, just trying to not be too much of an asshole. Just enough of an asshole. <laughs> I don't know. Maybe not. I'm kidding. But... Well, it's good to meet you. Yeah, it was really nice to meet you, and uh, it was a great conversation. Thank you. All right, that's Thomas Konstam. His novel, Lake City, available now from Counterpoint Press, official January pick of the Nervous Breakdown Book Club. Thomas Konstam, Lake City. Go get your copy right now. If you want to find Thomas online, you can do that at thomasconestam.com. He's on Facebook. He's on Instagram. You can uh, tweet at him. His handle on Twitter is at Thomas underscore K. Thank you to Kill Rockstars and the band Stereo Total, as always, for the theme song music. Thank you to Tiger in My Tank for the interstitial music. If you would like to support this program, your support makes a difference. You can do that at patreon.com slash other PPL pod. I think that's what it is. Patreon.com slash other PPL pod. Throw a few bucks in the hat. All episodes of this program are free. Just so you know, more than 550 and counting. 560. Is that where we are? Dear God, it's all free. There's another people app. Did you know that? The official app of this podcast is out there wherever you get your apps. It too is free. Go get the app. If you would like to write to me, the address is letters at otherppl.com. Thanks to The Great Courses Plus once again for uh, sponsoring. Check out thegreatcoursesplus.com slash otherppl for that offer. If you would like to sign up for the Nervous Breakdown Book Club, you can do that at thenervousbreakdown.com. Just click on Book Club in the menu bar. It's pretty self-explanatory. You should be able to figure it out, right? Hope everything's going well in your life. I mean, that's kind of a stupid thing to say. When is everything going well in a person's life? I hope most things are going well in your life. I hope whatever's not going well is manageable but like isn't it from a cosmic perspective all manageable isn't that what we're hoping isn't everything really no big deal in the ultimate sense aren't we sweating so many things for no big no big reason isn't it all just some kind of uh empty what am i looking for i'm not telling you not to care about life i'm just saying in the grand scheme of things, it's all going to be okay. That's what I tell myself. It's all going to be okay, right? What is this? What is this? If you're not on my wavelength, just go like Google a picture of an aardvark or a blobfish and then get back to me. It's very weird to be alive. That's okay. I feel like I've been talking fast. Like extra fast th uh, today in the monologue. Is it the caffeine? Is it something else? What is it? Is Mercury in retrograde? Am I in retrograde? Is this song ever going to end? You know how it works. I keep talking until the song ends. However long the song goes, that's how long I talk. Do I have a script? Of course I don't. 
I have some great episodes coming up, some uh, excellent conversations to share with you. I hope you'll remain firmly planted on the edge of your seat as you await those. I send you good vibes from Los Angeles, California. Can you feel it? (laughs) 